Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. I've known you quite a long time now. I was thinking about this this morning. I think we first met back in 2012 at Ultimate Performance in Mayfair when I was training with Nick Mitchell, the owner, and you were one of the senior PTs there. Obviously, an awful lot has happened in the 10, 11 years since, but I was hoping we could start off just by you giving a bit of a recap of your career up to that point, because there might be a few people who are familiar with your work now that might not know your backstory. So would you be able to just fill us in with a bit of a colour about how you got to Ultimate Performance in the first place? Okay, uh, right, I'm going to have to breathe in a lot of this. The I I started in the industry, what will be now, uh, just over 25 years ago, Uh did the usual route as everybody else, fitness instructor, personal trainer, uh, and then progressively sort of work from that point. Uh, I I worked up north uh, to start my career. I, uh, I I helped the company that I worked for set up personal training across their entire group. It was a hotel group that had gym memberships. Uh, then I worked abroad for a period of time. I set up a few gyms in amongst that with the group that I worked for, uh, managed, uh, worked as a personal trainer in all of them. And then worked abroad for a little bit, came back, got a job in London, uh, went back up north temporarily while, while they were getting the job sorted out, came back up to London. Uh, again, health and fitness space, setting up a gym, setting up a medical facility, setting up a personal training setup, uh, all testing facilities, et cetera, et cetera. They actually ran out of money. I then got a job at Third Space in Soho, which at the time was kind of the place to to be working as a as a coach and a personal trainer, it was the first of the real sort of exclusive boutique gyms, really that that was well established. And then and then from there, I was several years there for various reasons. I wanted to kind of upskill and move in different directions and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So I looked to move to the US. I was in the midst of doing that when uh, me and Nick were actually featured in Time Out article. Uh, on the best personal trainers in London, and we were both featured as the two coaches. There, were, there was a Pilates instructor, a dance instructor, and, a, and and me and Nick were both featured in. So that was kind of the first time we knew of each other, but we hadn't really met. And then and then we met through that inadvertently, and then we had a little meeting. He sat down and said, "Look, we're opening this facility in Mayfair. Would you like to come as our director of education?" Uh, and on a personal training level, was allowed to fundamentally come in and dictate my own price, which were all of the challenges I had before. And and then started working there. So I was the director of education, meeting Nick set up ultimate performance education, uh, which we shelved. We shelved after about 18 months because I was at the time I'd set up my own academy uh prior to that. And we'd kind of come a, I, I can tell you this now, but we'd sort of agreed that anything within London we'd would put under the un, uh, ultimate performance banner. Okay. Anything outside of London will be under my banner, which was the Advanced Coaching Academy. So it was kind of this agreement that we'd had that we'd do it this way. And then we shelved it after about 18 months because he was too busy opening gyms. 
I was too busy doing my my stuff, and we sort of mutually sort of said, "Well, you know, neither of us are giving it the love it deserves, and we don't really have the time or bandwidth to do that." So, so uh, we we put ultimate performance education, which is now kind of uh, came back to some degree internally, I think, and and uh, that was me ultimate performance. So then I was just a coach there. Uh, I was one of only two, I think, freelance trainers there. So I brought in all my own clients, uh, whereas as UP brought in clients for everybody else, and and that was where it was. And then I took the 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 option to retire from personal training on my twentieth anniversary. So so exactly twenty years from starting, I decided, look, this was the time to to to, to shut up shop and that and go and focus on the educational stuff, which is what I. I've done since and continue to do, uh, which we educate coaches. So we have a business academy, a nutrition academy, and a coaching academy. We also provide a lot of material for coaches in the industry. And off the back of that as well, I've just launched a business in the in the world of human performance, which is a supplement industry, which is a supplement brand, which is a, a slightly different focus to what we commonly see with sports nutrition. Uh, but again, I'm sure we'll get into some details yeah, about what that is. Back to, to that uh, in a minute, if that's okay. I just wanted to circle yeah. back on because I don't think I was aware that the coaching side of it and the education had always been something that had been a driver for you. Is it fair to say the end goal in your head, even as a younger PT, had always been to transition away from the gym floor more into an educational role to to help PTs and people coming into the industry to develop and grow their own businesses? Uh, I kind of, uh, I wouldn't say fell into it, but what, what was happening throughout my entire career was there was all these people coming in, uh, they were doing the level three, which was, is your basic certification that you need to be able to act as a personal trainer. They were coming in, they were very good coaches, but what would happen is after a short while, they'd figure out that they couldn't they couldn't work it as a business. Uh, they they kind of became a bit jaded to, towards what they could deliver to their clients because their educational base was very very basic uh so so out of that i was like look i was proactively going out and learning about business i was learning about extra nutritional stuff i was learning and at the time there wasn't a great deal with respect to extracurricular educational channels you couldn't go down much i think at the time there was uh sort of paul check doing stuff there's charles poliquin doing stuff and there was nothing really that specialized and looked at uh, the general population it was all, you know, everybody had an athletic base or they were looking at extreme populations mm-hmm. or bodybuilding or things like that. So so I thought, well, you know, this is the stuff I need to educate myself about. So I was doing it proactively myself. Then I'd get a lot of coaches asking me questions, et cetera, et cetera. And then I thought, right, I'm going to do a seminar on one of these. So I did a seminar and then that kind of then turned into, oh, I was doing quite frequent seminars with, you know, uh, time is I think that we did one seminar in Central London with about 280 people I think were at it about about nutrition basically for the general population so so that then turned into that and then throughout that I thought right I need something that I can deliver to people on a regular basis rather than just these seminars every every sort of six or eight weeks and that's where the academy came from so I thought well we need education that goes beyond the level three so so we looked at the level three which I mean booklet wise it's about that thick and then we wrote these, well, I wrote these three courses on business, nutrition, coaching, based off my own experience and also trying to keep good coaches in the industry and not losing them because of ridiculous reasons. You know, people who just didn't know how to get clients, didn't know how to sustain business, who didn't have basic business practices to be able to, uh, you know, deliver better services and expand the service models and and just just fundamentals that, that people were never taught. 
you know, it's a bit like when you come out of school, everybody, you know, you do maths at school, you, you have all this great mathematical knowledge, but you don't have the application of it. You don't understand what you do with it. So you'd come with all these, you know, I understand anatomy, I understand energy systems, I understand all this stuff that I learned at my level three, but how does that actually apply to my client? And I remember when I did a degree, I did sport and exercise science as a degree. And throughout that, I just used to sit and listen to all this information and go, well, how does this apply to a person? Because it's great. I've got all these kind of what I term as paper knowledge. I've got all this paper knowledge. Yeah. How do then I apply that to a client who comes in, you know, uh, Dave who comes in to see me, who 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 has a full time job, has three kids, has nutritional challenges, has has you know challenges with time and all these other things and sleep and and how do I apply all this? A lot of this evidence, a lot of this science was coming from sporting populations. You're professional athletes who who I love dealing with, but I love dealing with them because it was literally I tell them what to do, they go away and do it, which is something that you've experienced, right? Is that fundamentally if you do everything that your coach tells you it's actually not that difficult to formula it's a difficult application but the formula is actually very very simple in many respects but it's how do you get someone to take the simple formula and actually go away and do it because that's the challenge as a coach so it was all of these things and that was what you know prompted me to write this academy in this further education as such I think it's one thing to have the idea that that kind of service is needed, but it's quite another to become the UK's number one PT educator. How do you think you've managed to grow the business to to where it is now? Because it's something a lot of people have tried to emulate and no one else has really seemed to have the success or have the impact you have. To, what do you attribute that to? Uh, well, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of great courses out there. I've got a lot of good friends who who, who do very similar things to me. And it's quite nice because nobody feels that there's, 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 there's this breadth from all these different avenues because everybody delivers it slightly differently. I've got friends who deliver nutritional courses, coaching courses. But what we tried to do is kind of put it all under one umbrella. And I think that's kind of what what drew people to us because it was, we were taking this, this complex information and dumbing it down with doing without doing it a disrespect and and being able to explain it better to you know Joe public but also being able to explain it to the coaches because if we couldn't explain it to the coaches the coaches most definitely couldn't explain it to the public and it was also how much of that do they need to know you know and you'll know as a, as somebody who's had coaching is there's a point there where certain coaches will be telling you all this stuff and you're like I don't care I don't want to know that and it was it was dividing how do we know who are the people who want to know that additional information versus the people that don't and i think a lot of it for us was the and the appeal for us was the fact that we could take this complex information and deliver it quite well and i think that was from largely my experience of dealing with clients i think you know i tried to tally it up once upon a time and i think i'd done around about 40 to fifty thousand personal training sessions in my career and in that time you've either got this thing where People were coaching me very attentive for the first couple of years. And then they kind of switch off. They just go in, they get a bit bored, and they're delivering the same thing again and again. And I always tried to learn something from my clients, you know, irrespective of whether I'd had them for a long time or whatever it might be. I'd always be asking questions and trying to analyze their behaviors, analyze what they were doing and why they were succeeding, why they weren't. And, and it was bringing all that together and that, that personal experience that really you can't teach you know you only get from being in the field and doing it and that hands-on sort of knowledge that you get you know it's like running a business it's all what everybody knows the formulaic 
you know, way of running a business and operating a business. It's very simple, a lot of it. You know, the business fundamentals are basic. But it's how do you then take that and apply it to the right people at the right time with the right kind of uh, delivery systems as such. And, and it was all of these things. And looking at nutrition and trying not to bottleneck people. You know, we, we have a big nutritional educational section, which is all about your dietary systems. Because you'll get clients who come in who who follow a particular system and love that system, just isn't really working terribly well for them. And as a coach, you've got to be able to sit back and go, oh, oh, I appreciate that system. It has its flaws. But as a coach, I need to know what the flaws are. I need to know if these are the flaws that are the, uh, uh, the reason this person isn't getting the results they maybe want. And then maybe I just tweak it rather than going, oh, I hate that system and I despise that system and I'm anti this, and I'm pro this. And coaches have got to be kind of pro everything. Because at the end of the day, if it's worked for somebody, we need to understand why it worked and how it worked and what the, the pitfalls are perhaps with it and and go, there is probably somebody out there that this will work really, really well for. And there isn't a dietary system out there that hasn't had huge success with a, a small percentage of the people that have done it. And it's understanding why did they get success and the other 90% didn't. And if you can start to break that down, you start to come up with something where as a, as a coach, you become more rounded. You, you you know you can you can apply different things you understand different things you're not and you don't get defensive when somebody comes in and goes oh you know I like to do the five by five training system and I, I I like to follow keto you know you're not anti that you're just trying to understand what their application what they're trying to get out of it is and that's where your knowledge would come in so I think it was our delivery and ability to be able to take all that information and sort of segment it as such. when I first came into the industry you know, in the late 2000s, it seemed as though the top coaches were quite dogmatic in their beliefs. They were mm-hmm. very set in their ways of how things should be done. And that's not necessarily a criticism. It's just, I guess that was how you got your message out back then. Do you feel, would you agree with me? Do you feel that people who have got to the top have been slightly less dogmatic and more flexible and more understanding of the intricacies and the nuances of how different approaches can work for different people? I think that I think you've kind of hit, hit that evolutionary kind of step on the head. That's exactly what's happened. What happened years ago is that people people had very limited resources to where they could learn things from. You know, when I did my dissertation, I had to go to the British Library and take every single paper out. I didn't I didn't have access to PubMed and all these different things. And this the evolution of the industry has followed this this path of you know you had these very dogmatic coaches who were trying to create an identity for themselves. I wanted something to be unique. And ultimately, everybody at that point had the same skill set. Everybody, as far as everybody else was concerned, was a level three personal trainer. Everybody learned from the same textbook, learned the same thing. So what they were doing is they were going, right, who can I go and learn from that will make me unique? And you had these certifications like the like the, the, the Polyquin stuff, like the Czech stuff that we were around at the time. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, now I'm a such and such practitioner. And that made them unique to some degree, or it certainly put them into a smaller pocket of coaches that had that ability. So therefore, they were trying these things out and trying these, and it created this almost this circus of, of, of coaches doing these bizarre things with the wrong people. And it was, and and but you had to have a system. And I was guilty of it. You know, I was like, I don't like this. I like this. And I don't like this. And I like this. And what what's happened over the years? And 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 again, I think this is what why the, the industry is a little bit more open to information from everywhere. And, and you see it, even with UP, who you've got the experience with, they were very much known for following particular systems. And now really they're not, but there's still people that believe they are. 
you know they still believe that this is what they do when in actual fact it isn't really they deal deal with people on it and, and a lot of people i discuss about it you know they're all like oh well did you do this and did you do this i said no i said but but when you see it from a public perspective and you see all these transformations probably again i'll ballpark here what 80 percent of the clients that go to you pete aren't transformational clients it's just the fact that the 20 percent that are they get results with you know so therefore there's lots of before and afters mm-hmm. but the other 80 percent are people who are coming in who don't want these huge transformations but want better wellness want to function better want to perform better and blah 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 and i'm sure with your experience there you have the same thing so what happened is big you know uh, formidable forces like that in the industry me included we're then starting to go hold on we've got to think a little bit more outside this box that we essentially put ourselves in and we've got to think outside of it and go hold on this doesn't work for everybody so if i want to get more results with a wider audience i've got to understand a little bit more about this a little bit more about this and and i think this is where the industry's gone and people are far more open to these things than they ever were before and and i think now what differentiates coaches and what's starting to differentiate coaches is fundamentally the level of service that they give because everybody's had a bad experience of coaching everybody you know you talk to somebody who's had multiple personal trainers their experience with their first personal trainer second personal trainer, unless they were really fortunate was probably pretty bad mm-hmm. so for us a lot of the business stuff is about you know professional conduct firstly simple stuff stuff that you would expect but don't always get then it's delivery of service it's what does that client need to get the results and what can you provision for them you know and it's having these networks of people so for me i i was very fortunate in that i developed this network of i had good physios i had good you know people who could deal with soft tissue stuff i, could, I had doctors i had gps I had people who dealt with blood work so all of these things that the coaches are trying to learn for themselves and almost become this hybrid oh i'm a physio coach uh nutritionist uh this that the other when in fact you weren't really qualified in many of them you know but you had to have a fundamental knowledge of all of them and and i'd like to think that i've got a fundamental knowledge of pretty much all of that stuff but i know where the line stops where i'd go right i'm up to the point where i can only educate you this far and i can only help you this far i've got to now refer you to this other person and i think there's more of an openness now in the industry to look at external sources and go look i'm not an expert at this I have a good base knowledge, but this person is. And and now we've got these teams of people working together. And we were just talking about this the other night. I was at a, a meeting with a very, very big UK business. And we said about collaborations. And it's this thing where in business now, people are going, collaborative projects are a big thing now. And the industries, the fitness industry, not that dissimilar. Collaborations were like a thing you just didn't do back in the day. And I say back in the day, you know, 15 years ago. 10 years ago even and people were like no uh, you know and this is why when coaches so so if you were my client and i went on holiday i'd be like joe you've just gotta just hold fire until i get back you know whereas you know when i i coach people i was like look i'm gonna hold it i'm gonna have to find you another coach and chances are most of the time when i was away i was actually away with a client you know and, and that client would want me to travel with him or whatever it might be so a lot of the time i'd have to go look uh you know i've got this client and I'd talk to, and you know, for example, Barry. So I'd, I'd speak to Barry, and I'd, I'd, I'd say to him, I'd say, "Look, mate, can you look after my clients for a week?" And there was no threat to me. I didn't feel any threat from these coaches that I'm going to come back and my clients going to run off with this 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 coach because I was confident in the service that I was delivering. 
And and I think coaches have that level of confidence a little bit more than they did. I think they've got this openness to collaborate and also to work with other people that sit outside of their remit or their skill set or whatever it might be. So so yeah, I think you you know you bang on there. I think that dogmatic approach has actually changed into a very open minded uh, approach and something where people people think outside of that proverbial box, right? Going above and beyond has obviously been an absolute fundamental of, of your career, both as a trainer and, and what you're doing now as an educator. I wanted to speak now a little bit about the fitness industry professionals, specifically in, in the UK and perhaps where some majority, all of them are going wrong. What, you know, you have a lot of people come through your door and, and, and want your services. Are there any common threads you can pull on as like, well, most people seem to be getting this wrong or most people aren't really appreciating the importance of this. Is there any kind of common themes or common mistakes you see? Uh, no, I think it, I, it, I think it goes back to kind of fundamental. Everybody's looking for identity, right? We're in this, we're in this society now where everybody is trying to carve out their own identity. And for that, they think they have to be unique or different or, or whatever it might be. And when you're in a service industry, what you got to remember is that good service is good service, you know. And I always akin this to to to, to hotels. You go into a hotel, and I always use this analogy, and you've probably heard me use it before, but I'll use it again because I think it's a really good one. Is that you can go to an area of London, and you can find two five star hotels. And five star hotels have this list of amenities that they must have in order to qualify to be a five star hotel. So they have this list of amenities: swim pool, spa, all this stuff, type of bed sheets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the difference between them both is the people is that one of them you might pay a £1,000 a night for. The other one you might pay £200 a night, but neither of them cheap. But one, you're going to get incredible service. So if I was to stay in the £1,000 a night one, if I went to the concierge and asked them that I needed tickets for something or wanted to do something during the day, I expect him to deliver that. The £200 a night, I don't expect a lot. And this is where coaches get things wrong. Coaches are trying to... Uh, they're trying to niche. They're trying to pinpoint particular people that they want to target or whatever it might be. And, you know, we hear, you know, there's a lot of vocabulary in the industry now about people who they deal with. You know, I deal with busy mums. I deal with, you know, which is which is a little bit of a bizarre statement because I don't know a, a mum that isn't busy. But we deal with busy mums. You know, we deal with, uh, you know, professional, busy professional, same thing. Uh, do you know a non-busy professional? But but there's these kind of taglines that people are going, this is who I deal with. But then you've got to then know how to deal with them and you've got to understand the fundamentals of what they are. And it's it's a bit like I remember when I first started in the industry and, and people would always throw things back in your face, go, well, you don't understand. Because at that time, I didn't have kids. So they'd be like, but you don't understand what it's like. And to be fair, they had a point because I didn't. But it's a bit like, you know, I was, I was massively overweight as a kid. So when I talked about obesity and I talked about being overweight, people didn't just judge me and look at me and go, yeah, but you're, you're in good shape. You don't understand. I'm like, this is my history. So I'd make it very clear that was my history. So all of a sudden then they're like, oh, you do understand. I'm like, yeah, I totally get it. I totally get it. I know what the challenges are. I know what it feels like. I know how difficult it is with foods at times. I know that there's, you know, there's everybody's chasing dopamine. Everybody's trying to be happy. And for me, happiness was food, right? You know, and it was... And I understood these things. And I think there's, there's so many coaches who are trying to niche out and pick this category of people they're going to deal with, but they don't understand the fundamentals of what that person needs, you know, and they don't 
take into consideration things that people need. And, you know, it's like transformational stuff. Transformational stuff's great, but transformational stuff has all these overlying factors that it's all well and good. And, uh, you know, I remember when you did yours, is that what were your commitments at that time for time? Did you have loads of free time? Did you have any other people who were dependent upon you? So, so were there other people in the mix? Uh, did you have to sit down and eat as a family every night? You know, so there's all these factors that align that make that an easy prospect or an easier prospect. And you know how hard it was, right? Even with everything that was really in your favor. But then when somebody turns up who goes, right, I've got a full-time job. And when I mean full-time, I mean I am in at six in the morning and I leave at eight, nine at night. And then I've got emails to do when I get home. And I've got a family and I've got three kids. And I've got social commitments as part of that business that I'm in. Uh, you know, I've got travel commitments. I've got all these commitments that you're telling me that I just have to stop and just do, you know. And then it comes back to the people turning around to the clients uh, when they're not getting results or they're not eating the way they should. And there's the, you know, they're not committed enough. They don't want it enough. And we're not taking logistics into the into the scenario. Again, I, might, I think I've gone off on a bit of a tangent there, but but it, it's it's those fundamentals not understanding who you're serving. And I think that's always the thing, is that, you know, if I go and stay in a Premier Inn, there's certain things that are just a complete waste of time. There's no point in you, if I go and stay in a Premier Inn, I don't expect a, a, a thread count on my linen. I don't, I just expect the bed, the functions, and I expect it to be clean. I don't have expectancies above that. And when you are a coach and you position yourself and you niche yourself and you say, this is who you deal with, there are certain expectancies. And I think a lot of coaches are failing on those expectancies. They're trying to deal with people and have these high ticket services, but they don't deliver on that high ticket service. They taught this great game, but they don't deliver. And again, it's these kind of false promises. And I think our industry is riddled with false promises. Everyone's like, oh, we can do this and we can do this and we can do this. And I think one of the things when I was a coach, when I dealt with people on transformational stuff, I was always very honest. So when I would dealt with bodybuilders, physique athletes, and things like this, if somebody came to me, you'd normally get that generic, oh, 12 weeks. We need 12 weeks to lie. I'd look, look at somebody physically, blah, blah, blah. I'd look at my own skill set, and I'd go, right, we need 19 weeks. They'd go, yeah, but I've got a competition in 12 months. We're not going to be able to do it. So we plan for the next competition. And it was that realistic sort of plan of, this is where you are now. This is how your habits and behaviors are now. This is how your lifestyle is right now realistically, this is what this is going to take us. Unless you compromise all that other stuff. You know, if you want to compromise your relationships with people, and and you look, and again, I'm using you as a, you're a great example because you've been through this, Joel. You know what these extreme transformations are like. You alienate yourself from your friends because they stop asking you out for dinner because you just say no. They stop asking you out for drinks because you don't drink. They stop doing things with you because you've become quite introverted, quite boring. You know, and and you need to explain that to people. This is what's going to happen. And and if you came from a slightly different, you know, sort of physicality of where you were, because you weren't going from somebody who was hugely overweight or, you know, uh, ridiculously out of condition, you were actually doing something which is, uh, you know, a, a completely different challenge is that you went from, you know, packing on muscle, which is a big challenge. But what happens there is that you typically align as a human being. So if, if you're a 40-year-old, Lork, who's a bit overweight and a bit this, idea. your social circles will revolve around the things that maintain that physicality. So you'll have friends you drink with, friends you eat with, friends you do all these things with, and they want you to be you. 
And unfortunately, when you go, I don't do that anymore, they don't like it. They're going to push you and go. And it's those psychological sides of things and behavioral things that coaches probably don't get and they don't indulge in and understand. And this is where these promises become false promises because they're like, yeah, we can do this. But it means that you've got to give up this, give up this, give up this, give up this, fall out with this person, alienate this person, you know, uh, tell your kids that you can't do this because you're busy prepping food. You know, the amount of people, again, just fundamentals like, you know, the amount of people that get sent away to prep their, their meals, but they can't cook. Average person can cook less than six dishes. You know, if you're born after 1978, I think it is, I can't remember the study exactly, 1978, you can probably only cook three dishes. You know, because you can buy food everywhere. Why would you make food? You know, I can buy, I can even get companies to make the food that I actually want to prep. You know, so why would I do that if budget's there? So, so yeah, there's a whole budget stuff, Johnny. With a lot of PTs, I think then, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong or, or back me up if I'm right, their metrics for success aren't necessarily aligned with what should be for optimal service, right? So a lot of PTs, their main, I guess their main focus and understandably is on revenue and getting and keeping clients. But do you feel that's not necessarily the best metrics that you should employ if you are a trainer? Should you be looking beyond the numbers on a spreadsheet? And I understand that the, the dichotomy there of you needing to pay the bills, right? You need people to mm-hmm. come through the door. But also, is that the best model to set you up for longer-term success? Uh, I agree, and I also disagree to some degree. Uh, there's, there is that dichotomy, as you say, of, of you know you've got to pay the bills. But there's, there's how does somebody enjoy something? And and whatever any coach, coaches that tell me that I'm not in it for the money, unless you're from a very privileged background and you don't need to pay bills, that's nonsense. Because you've got to earn a living from what you do. If that's going to be your job, you've got to earn a living. You know, whatever way you could help. You can also, in the back of your mind, thoroughly enjoy it, want to deliver the service and want to get results for people and want to help people. And really, that's the foundation of being a good coach. If you don't care about people, you're not going to last very long. You know, and people say, well, well why did you get into this? I said, I want to help people. Categorically, that's why I got into this industry. But I wouldn't still be in this industry if I didn't make a living out of it. Because I quit and got another job. And I, and, and this was, again, going back on what I was saying before about the reasons for setting up the academy. It's because of that. I was watching great coaches leave because they couldn't pay their bills. And they get nine, five jobs that you hated because they couldn't pay the bills and they had commitments and they had families and they had young kids and 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 they had no choice. But they had to step away from something they loved because they couldn't get what they loved to work for them. And it was this, so so metric-wise, really you're gonna be chasing a whole bunch of them. And, and you know, what do you want to earn? Uh, even take it back to really the core. So if you're a coach and you wanna earn X amount of money, you need to think about your demography. Is where are you based? You know, the amount of people years ago that you said to me, you know, I'm a coach, I'm in Manchester, wherever it might be. I've got to move to London, make more money. I said, no, 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 you'll charge more. That's the cost of living goes up. I said, so ultimately, are you any better off? You know, I used to, you know, my first, my first job in as a personal trainer, I used to charge £30 an hour for personal training, nearly what will now be 25 to 30 years ago. 
you can get personal training in the same town I started personal training. Now, I was only the, the only personal trainer there when that was set up, little town in the Lake District. You can now buy a personal training for £28 an hour. Okay? So something's either drastically gone wrong or the service level is horrendous. Or people are just terrified of increasing their prices because they're being set by this market. You know, and I, I, I never felt that I should be inhibited by what the market was dictating to me. People always say, how should I price myself? Oh, look what everybody else is trying to No, no, no. Look what service everybody else is delivering. If you can deliver an inf infinitely better service, you can charge a lot more. But you also have to be in a place where people are willing to pay those fees. You know, I was fortunate that I was central. And then I finished my career in Mayfair. You know, what I was charging, people didn't buy highly that. You know, and I think at the time I was the highest charging personal trainer in the in the in the, the country. From what I knew, there may well have been other people that were kind of under the radar or whatever it might be. But again, it's that service delivery. You understand that you've got to deliver this high level of service. So your metrics have got to be down to yes, they've got to be numbers. There's got to be you know what's my client attrition rate? What's my this that the other? Because again, just like you pointed out before, there's this big heavy push on. All I've got to do is get someone through the door. So people are big on packages, and again, online coaching has turned this into an absolute monster. Because if I can convince someone that they're going to get these results, they're going to get this service, they're going to get this, 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 and I can get them to buy it all up front, you know, all of a sudden now I'm not really obligated to deliver that. And I'm not that worried about it either because it's online, which means they're never going to talk to my other clients. They're never going to be loud enough unless they're an influencer with a million followers. They're never going to be able to talk loud enough to actually damage my business. And all I've got to do is find some other person who believes all that stuff as well. And this is what's happened. Is we've gone from one-on-one -on -one coaching, which you can't hide. If you're bad, you'll get found out eventually. To online coaching where you can deliver a bad service and you can keep regurgitating, regurgitating. And I know of some people who've been in the industry for probably 15 years who've changed their business name multiple of times who keep doing the exact same thing. They overpromise, they underdeliver, they charge way too much money. But they convince a bunch of people because they're very good at the sales and marketing aspect. And and they just sell high-ticket items. Service delivery is terrible. I mean, there's there's forums online of, about some of these coaches. But these forums aren't big enough that it gets out to enough people for them to know that this guy is an actual con artist. You know, and I know I know I could name five or ten of them who re uh, you know reinvented their businesses and reestablished their businesses and renamed their renamed their systems or whatever it might be it's the same thing done over and over again because online you can kind of hide so there's a lot of due diligence there's a lot of stuff that coaches got to be really open about and also testimony is a big thing now is that you've got to have genuine people who've genuinely done what you promised and they're talking about it and this is where social proof and etc cetera, etc cetera, come into play but there's still people who do it who don't you know, they just create, Dave said this, John said this, you know, whatever it might be, said this. And people who read it go, oh my God, that sounds amazing. You know, which I think is why video testimony and stuff like this now is becoming a lot bigger because people want that. People are people are pessimistic about personal training and they should be. And they, they have been for the last 25, 30 years. And it's one of, in one of the modules, we actually talk about it. Like, look, people have had bad experiences. You need to be the good experience. If you're the good experience, people will rave about you. They'll scream about you. Because remember, people only people only ever leave testimony when something's really bad or really good. If it's average and in the middle, they're not they're not they're not like oh my god, I'm going to leave a review. It's like you know, if I go to a restaurant in London and somebody 
the service is incredible. I'm like, hold on, whoa, I need to speak to manager before I go out of this place to tell them how good that person was. Because that person there deserves a promotion, a raise, whatever it might be. But I'm the one that's going to get them that. Me and probably 20 or 30 other people that they've served at a similar level who have that same mentality. Because that needs rewarded. And this is this is where, you know, if you've got people screaming and shouting at me without you asking, you know, you're winning, right? You know, and one of the things I, as a coach, I, w- I always thought about and early on in my career, I, it was something I did very early on in my career. I was like, look, I need to differentiate myself. So what what's going to make me stand out? What's going to make my clients talk to the other people? In? And I wasn't trying to necessarily grab other people's clients. But what it was is changing rooms where everybody talks and, you know, communal areas and blah, blah, blah. I was like, right, what are the things that I can do that nobody else is doing? So I grew up in a pub. So I used to get my parents to buy me batches and I used to give them the money for it and I used to get them to buy big cases of water. And every day in my backpack, I used to take bottles of water in my backpack and I used to put them in my locker at, at work. And when my clients came in, I'd give them the towel, which was part of their membership, give them the towel and give them a bottle of water. Of course, everybody else in the club was like, why do they get a bottle of water? And it would always get pointed back at, Phil gives them it. Like, you know, it didn't say anything about my service or how good I was as a coach or anything like that. It was just this simple thing where people are like, my coach doesn't do that. You know, so there must be something. So then curiosity takes over. They then start digging a little bit. Next thing, you know, three months later, they're going, Phil, is there any chance you can fit me in? I'm like, no, I've got a waiting list, sorry. <laughs> and, and I was, my entire career, Joe, I had a waiting list of clients. My entire career. There wasn't a single, uh, I say entire career. I'm going to uh, preface this with, there was actually a period about three or four weeks when I started in third space that I didn't have a waiting list. But after three or four weeks, I had a waiting list. Previously, we used to educate people, you need to deliver a better service. You need to cater for people with food acquisition. So where they're going to get it from, how they're going to find out where from and blah, blah, blah. So collaborations with things like uh, food prep companies, you know, how do we tie them in with coaches? Uh, so people either want to buy their food in they want to buy it out, so we need to have all the details for things like Pret and, you know, hell, every right the way down to sort McDonald's and things like this. So where people, you know, you do a geographical audit, I call it, where I would take wherever you work, John, I go, right, do you walk out and go and get your lunch every day? If you do, I need to check all the restaurants within the area that you're going to get your food from and tell you, you know, what are the best things for you to buy to stay in line with with your targets? So, so we provide all that. We have a, an eatery guide, which has, I think we've got about 100 and something restaurants in there now. Um, we provide recipes for the people that want to go home and do their kind of gusto or their, uh, you know, the, the, the food prep stuff. And also collaborations with those kind of businesses to go, look, we're going to introduce a coach for you. The coach can use it as a secondary revenue stream, but they'll do all the legwork. So, I mean, going back 20 years, so I, I used to go to the supermarket with my clients. Yeah, I used to do stuff that people are now just starting to do. I used to I used to organize shops for them uh, before online shopping was a thing. I used to organize getting their groceries delivered, and I used to give them recipes. and I used to, and it was all this manual thing. It was like the the migration from doing Excel spreadsheets, but I used to plan everything for them. And and even towards the latter end of my career, I was still you know if I had a client traveling, I'd look at their travel routes, I'd find out where they could eat, I'd speak to the hotels. I'd speak to the chefs in the hotels. You know, I did a, a, a one of the last projects I did was actually uh, dealing with an actor and actress for a for a big movie, and and 
we tried to organize a food prep company to to get food to them, but it was all very short notice. And and we couldn't, but they were staying in a five-star hotel in London. So I phoned the hotel up. I managed to get through to the chef, this Michelin-style chef. And I said, look, we need these kind of macros hits. And he goes, I know nothing about macros. He goes, I have no idea. He goes, you need to tell me specifically what I need to do with the dishes that we serve. I said, look, this is going to be too complicated. So I went off, went to the supermarket, got all the food, went home, cooked it all, prepared it all, uh, bought a cool bag, stuck it in the cool bag, put it in an Uber and sent it to the hotel. And that was, you know, and I actually built all that for the studio, but it was that level of service that I'm prepared to go to with my clients to get them the results that they need. And they, and they were all a bit bizarre about it. They all said, well, it, it's only it's only two days of food. I said, yeah, but you've came to me with a deadline that is super short. They gave me 10 weeks. And they said, 10 weeks, we need to get this person in this shape and this person in this shape. And nobody knows it's better than you, right? You know, so I'm like, wow, we're up against this here. So they were like, look, it's only two days. They can do this, that, the other. I said, yeah, but they're conscious it's only two days, and they know what's going to happen in two days. So what they're going to do in the hotel for the next two days, they're going to eat loads and loads of junk. I said, which instantly puts us on the back foot. I said, we need to start training yesterday, <laughs> and we need to start getting the diet in order from this second, from literally us sitting down and having this meeting about this is what we want them to look like, and this is what we want them to do. And you're up against a timeline, but that came back to that service delivery is that how do we enable coaches to do this? And we've got more than ever before the ability to do these things. You know, we've got online shopping, we've got food prep companies everywhere, you know. So, you know, we've got businesses that cater for, you know, we either uh, Hello Fresh or Gusto every night. I know the numbers, it means we can eat as a family. So every night we sit down as a family, which again, a lot of people don't do now, and especially when people are trying to get into shape and blah, 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 all of a sudden you're eating completely different to what everybody else is eating. These things facilitate this and they allow coaches to actually deliver these services, but also enable people to live their lives and do what they do, right? If you look back at the start of your career versus now, right, 20, 25 years, how much the industry has changed? Christ, how much has changed in the last three years because of COVID, the transition to online technology, uh, online training, the technology, I mean, social media, the entire landscape has changed, right? And that's presented a, a ton of opportunities with now a trainer's, a, a coach has got an online audience potentially, right, through, through online training. You've got free marketing tools, but on the flip side, there's that competitiveness. You're now competing against a global market. There's influencers with millions of followers pushing plans. My question, a long-winded way of saying it, is what would a 20-year-old Phil Learney do now if you're about to embark on your career? How would you build in some of that above and beyond value-add services in a, in a completely changed landscape? I think knowing what I know, if I was to take what I know now and take it back, I'd do something very different to if I was being led by the industry. If I was being led by the industry, first thing I'd do is go online and I'd do myself a massive disservice because my coaching skills and my ability, not necessarily to be able to teach someone how to do a squat, but to be able to communicate how you do a squat. If I can communicate it to someone, and I remember one of the coaching drills that we did, and this was this was in my level three, but we had a really good level three coach. And this, we're talking a lot of years ago here. And I remember to this day, what you made us do, what he did, he, he said, right, I want you to go and coach a bench press. Everybody had a different exercise. Mine was a bench press. I remember it very clearly. I remember exactly where I was. It was in, you know, this particular gym. And he said, go and coach a bench press, but you're not allowed to speak. 
He said, now go and coach the same bench press, but you're not allowed, but you're only allowed to speak. You can't move your arms or anything. And then he made us do it in a tactile way. Because again, back then it was a slightly different environment that, you know, you'd still ask permission, but there was a lot more you could move clients around about without being worried that somebody's going to sue the hell out of you. Mm. But but again, that's still possible to this day. You can still do those things. And what he did, he made us coach them all at different levels. Now, if I, if I was to do it and know what I know now, I'll go into a gym, a gym with loads of members, like loads of members. Because if there's loads of members, I can practice several things. I can practice being a coach because I can be busy. I can practice my communication skills because what I want is I want to wait and list the clients. So every single person that walks through that door, I'm going to greet, I'm going to say hello to, I'm going to introduce myself to. Because if I can't do that, I'm never going to pick up clients. So I'm going to practice all those things and spend a lot of time doing that. When I've mastered that, when I've got into a nice position, what I'll then do is probably move into a hybrid thing where I'm doing part online coaching, where I'm doing a few online sessions. And what I do when I'm doing my online sessions is I've mastered the delivery of those services. Because I've got to figure out communication channels. What are they going to look like? Check-ins, how are people going to do that? What kind of tech am I going to use? How am I going to deliver something which I'm used to delivering physically to somebody remotely? Am I going to use tech? Am I going to use videos? Am I going to use, you know, uh, what do I need? Do I need a laptop? Do I need a large space at home in which I can do my movements? What do I need? So I'd figure all that out with a very small amount of clients that would be paying probably not a great deal of money because I'm practicing on them. I'm getting skilled. Just like I would with personal training, I wouldn't charge a lot when I started because I want loads of clients. And then, and then I'm going to refine and get better at my service and learn more and do all those things. And I'd be doing that throughout this entire process. Then what I would do is probably over time, I'd start to move my online heavier. So I'll, I'd go from 50-50 to 70-30 to whatever it might be. And then at that point, I'd probably decide how much do I enjoy one-on-one? And that would dictate how much of that I will continue to do. Or how much do I enjoy online coaching and also the rewards I get with online coaching? Because I'm going to earn more money online coaching because it's not an exchange of time. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing every hour I'm this, that, And I'd also look at where my locality was. If I'm doing online and coaching in a hybrid model, back up north where I was when I grew up, I'd be like, "Why? Well, there's a cap as to how much I can charge for one-on-one coaching. Online coaching has no cap because it's to do with my service delivery and I can serve anybody around the world. Whereas I'm demographically limited here. So there's only so much I could charge for one-on-one coaching if I was still in the Lake District. But if I'm in Mayfair, I can keep charging more and more. And what I would probably do is if I was in a good location and a location where uh, money and services exchanged at those levels at quite high levels, what I would do is I'd probably keep bumping my prices up. And if my client base started to go down, I'd bring in more online coaching. If it didn't, I'd continue to escalate the other one. So you've got to look at where you are location-wise and 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 I'm saying this as though I'm telling someone what to do. But fundamentally, that's how I'd probably live my service. But then I'd also look at innovative ways of how do I live, deliver a better service remotely? How do I do that? What are the things I can do? do? Could I build a community? You know, can I bring them together once a year in London or whatever it might be? So communities are always good. You know, lots of people are always good. So people can talk and... And I think that's a very bold move as a coach to bring all of the people, and especially online coaching, is that I'm delivering this online service, but nobody can communicate with each other. It's a very bold move for me to then go, right, I'm going to put myself in the firing line. I'm going to invite everybody into one room. And if they've all got gripes with me, they can all gang up on me and they all can go at me. They're all delivering a wonderful service. All I'm going to do, I'm going to stand there and they're just going to tell me how great I am. 
And, I mean, and it, it's a bold move there. Like it's one one rung up from having all your ex girlfriends in one room, right? I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a level there of like this could this could be great, or this could be something I I really yeah. don't. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great argument, and you could think about that, right? Are they all going to turn around and go, yeah, great guy, just didn't work out? Or are they all going to say, he's a prick? <laughs> and and, and it's, it's that same thing. It's that if you're delivering a fantastic service, you can bundle everybody in the same room and go, you are all just standing here and talk about how great I am. And it's a bold move, but a lot of online coaches, they'll never do that because they're delivering this 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 hodgepodge of really poor service or good service to start with, and then it slides off. Then it, but that's part of the scaling thing, is that they go from 10 clients that they're servicing incredibly well, and then they think, right, I need more money. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take on another 10, then service drops. Then I'm going to do another 10, service drops. And I always remember one-on-one coaching, and this was a discussion I used to have a lot with coaches when I first started the academy, because online coaching wasn't really a thing when we first started it. And I always said to coaches, I said, look, You've got a, a point there of how many hours you can work as a coach before your services start to decline. Because as a coach, it's it's not like a nine-five job. A nine-five job, and again, not to disrespect anybody who does a nine-five job, but if you're going into a nine-five job, you're not working solidly, cognitively, physically for that entire time. If you've got clients nine to five, you are. You can't switch off. So cognitively, at the end of the day, somebody doing a 40-hour week as a coach is massively fatiguing, massively. And you can't keep doing it, otherwise you burn out. Or your other option is to do 40 hours and maybe do 20 hours that are good, 20 hours that are you yawning and tired and fatigued and this, that, and the other. Because it, you've got to be 100% on the job the entire time. It's why you know people in the city, they burn out because they've got to be on it full time. You know, it's it's that kind of challenge that you've got. And I always used to say, look, coaches, there's a point there. And I always deduce my was between 25 and 30 sessions a week. If I do any more than that, my service level starts to drop to the point that I would actually start, I would be tired in the sessions, which when I had clients paying what they were paying, I can't have that. Mm. And and it's disrespectful because they're paying a huge amount of money and I'm, I'm there sneaking off in the corner going, oh, or I'm, I'm drinking cups of coffee like it's going out of fashion. And all these different things that are my my mind had strayed, and I won't be paying attention to what they're doing, or I'll be daydreaming about something. And it happens, and it happened to me, you know. And I know, and I admit that there was a bunch of clients in the middle of my career that I serviced really badly because I was tired all the time. And I convinced myself, as all coaches do, that oh, I can survive off a hours of sleep. I'm fine, I'm good. But in reality, I was like, look, if I want to scale my numbers, i.e., how much I charge per session. My service has got to be on point. It's got to be amazing. It's got to be this. I've got to also do work outside of those one-on-one sessions. So, you know, I'd go home and I'd do several hours work on prepping stuff for clients. If they were traveling, I'd be looking at their flight schedules and all of this stuff. If I was going to deliver that service, I had to have this infrastructure of I've got to have time to do that. And I think online coaching, this is where people slip. They think, right, I'm doing really well at this online coach. I've got 10 clients servicing them really well. I'm going to do 20. But they haven't figured out how they're going to deliver the same service to 20 people. So and then you, they're at the Do you think that the the growth of online and, and the transition as as maybe coaches move off the gym floor to behind a laptop, is that going to improve the quality of the overall personal training industry? Or is that going to lead to a, a significant decrease in terms of a quality of service? I think I think a bit of both, George, to be honest. Right. I think there's I think what's happened, COVID particularly, COVID 
again, this is going to sound horrendous. COVID got rid of a lot of the crap in the industry. A lot of the coaches that were just teaching on just surviving and doing this, that, that they went because they, the heart wasn't in it anyways. So they didn't care that much. You know, they liked what they were doing because it's fun, it's this, that, the other, and, and what have you. So they probably hung on a little bit, but then they were like, look, can't do this. And, you know, I'm struggling to make ends meet. Whereas the people who were passionate about it were like, right, I need to knuckle down here and figure out what I'm going to do to survive because I want to be a coach at the end of this. So we kind of got rid of all those those people. And then what was left at the end was all of these coaches and some of them had moved online and blah, blah, blah. So I think it's online coaching is going to follow the same pattern and the same processes coaching did one-on-one coaching is that what's going to happen over the years is that people are going to identify what a good service is and the thing that i used to do a lot of stuff that no coaches ever did of my era like service level i used to you know get food from people prep it you know get chefs for people i had three clients I used to have, have organized chefs for and chefs would turn up twice a week for them and cook for them and and what people didn't realize is that that was only costing them about 50 60 quid a week you know, for somebody to come in and prep their food, or they were going to spend two hours every night cooking and doing something they weren't very good at. Didn't make sense. But I was looking outside that box and going, well, hold on, how much is it to hire a chef? You know, and then what I'll do, I'll organize their online shopping to arrive when the chef gets there. So the food would arrive, chef's there, chef preps it all, two days a week, Monday and Thursday typically, and he'd prep the food for the next few days. They'd all be in Tupperware, and all I'd have to do is open the fridge and take the food out for the day. So. Yeah, and it was a different approach for different people, but fundamentally it was that sort of thing. So I think the same thing will happen. I think online coaching will be clients will go through a bunch of bad experiences and go, it's not a service I want. And I had a consult yesterday actually with a coach who was just moving to an online, almost an online kind of hybrid delivery. And I said to him, look, you need almost like this list of services because he's wanting to charge a high ticket. I said, somebody's going to look at it and go, what do I get here? Bam, 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 bam. And once upon a time, what you got as a coach or a client of a coach was you get to book in and you get an hour with that coach. There was no specifications as to what you were going to get during that hour. You will get my full attention. That should be a given. Yeah. But it's not always a given. You should get this. This this will be my delivery. And all people were worried about was, what am I going to get at the end of it? But what you get at the end of it is actually down to you. Not down to me. Because at the end of the day, I can, I can give you all the tools I can. But at the end of the day, if you don't go away and apply it, maybe you're not ready, but a lot of the time it isn't. It's actually because I've coached you badly, you know, because somebody coming in and spending the type of money that I was charging, they're not not serious about their their transformation. They're not not serious. And this is the thing with pricing is if you're charging whatever, you know, low rates, people people sign up just because they, they can't, you're not going to get results because the people don't care about the money, whereas money is a massive driver for people. If I've invested in something, I've got to put the time in. You know, and and you'll do something, and it's you know it can be such a small investment, but you you look after it, and you work at it, and do that. So there, there, there's fine lines there, but I think online coaching will follow the same route. You know, I think that I think what will happen is people will figure out what a poor service is, and they'll expect more, which I I like to always talk to anybody and just go, you've got to expect more. This is what you're paying. This is what you should be getting. think uh, it's a particularly controversial view I have that the the barriers to entry into UK personal training are particularly low, right? With a level two with a weekend course, level three. I mean, it's a low barrier. If you were in charge 
uh, hypothetically, and you can instigate three or four or five instant changes to how the UK personal training model industry works, what would you do? Because you've got the low barrier to interest. You've got the commercial gym model where they just want people in, in through the door. There's nothing seems to me, at least, inherently built in the system to foster longevity, to foster career development. What would you do if you could just wave a magic wand and make those changes? It's difficult. I've had countless discussions with people that are meant to govern this. You know, countless discussions. And what the biggest challenge they've got, and again, I'll talk to you about it in the same way I talk to them, is that the biggest challenge we have is how do we get rogue trainers, firstly, the people who aren't qualified, how do you get them out of the industry? Now, the challenge you've got now is you can't get them out of the industry because insurers will insure them even if you haven't got a qualification now. A few years ago, they wouldn't. But a few years ago, they'd insure you if you had level three, but then insure you literally for whatever. So so really, we've, we've got to start this at the point where people cannot work unless they're relevantly qualified. And, and the thing is, what's happening now is gyms permit people to work if they're not qualified. Insurers insure people if they're not qualified. You know, you don't have to have much proof of it. So really, we've got to go back before the qualification in some respects and get the people that are actually sorting the qualification out of coaches to enable and facilitate them to work. Because if they're uninsured, they shouldn't be dealing with clients. And the clients, and it should be a norm that the client will ask the trainer for their insurance documentation. So there's got to be a big cultural shift as to what people expect from qualification. Because uh, big well-known coach, I think it was Nick Winkleman yesterday, or uh, I think it was, was it Nick Winkleman? I think he posted something yesterday and said, look, in all my years as a coach, I've never once been asked for my certificates, which is true. I've never been asked for my certificates. Nobody's ever said, prove that you're qualified. You know, I've had employers do it, but again, not as probably regularly as I should be. So, you know, it was going back to how do we stop people working who aren't qualified? Secondly, how do we then raise the standards? The only way we're going to be able to raise the standards is to give people a better living from what they're doing. Now, that's is a mind trail because PT prices historically have never run with inflation rates. They haven't. What they charge for PT in London is pretty much the same as it was 15 or 20 years ago when I first started in London. PT ranges from about 50 to 65 pounds. It's the same 15 years ago. You know, there's certain places that are charging a bit more, but they're seen as, oh, you know, that's expensive there. You know, and when you start to get into those levels, we then start to get a service that is more consistent Trainers are qualified, trainers are insured, they're vetted more, you know, and, and the certain facilities that you can guarantee that's going to happen. Whereas the more commercial facilities, they're the ones that are kind of letting us down on that front because they're employing people who, there's no CPD, which there used to be. There used to be a big thing about you've got to have X amount of CPD points per year to stay employed. And a lot of the big chain gyms used to do that. They don't do that anymore. But also because this, the governing bodies that give out the CPDs have let us down. I fell out with one of the original ones, reps. So reps used to certify our, our stuff. And I fell out with them and actually withdrew our certification from them uh, because I turned up at one of the big events, one of the big speaking events uh, in the UK, Body Power. It used to be one of the big conventions. I turned up and I had three or four talks on throughout the course of the weekend. And what had happened is reps had certified the, the, the seminars so you could turn up at the seminar and you get two points, I think it was, two CPD points or something like that. It was one or two. But all you had to do was sign in for the seminar. 
Now, at no point, which was kind of nice, and it was a nice little nod to me, maybe, but at no point did they ever contact me and ask what the content was. Right. And that, to me, was a... That was them done. I'm like, nice that you've maybe trusted me and trusted that it's me delivering it, but you should still be vetting my content. That's your job. And all these people that were coming and signing in, they were sitting there, they were playing on their phones, some of them, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'd like to think they weren't, but I'm sure some of them were. Some of them were just there for the CPDs. They weren't yeah. interested in what I had to say. And they could have turned up. I could have talked about anything. Could have been terrible, whatever. And they get CPDs. But everybody else who was speaking that weekend also gave, gave CPDs. So if you went to a bunch of seminars, you were qualified for the entire year. And and at that point, that really let the industry down. And that point was kind of them slowly on the down curve where, where they didn't exist anymore and they got bought out. But it was, I think there's a lot of work to do, Joe. It sounds as though, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's almost, I don't see how it can be fixed. Are the problems too deep and too endemic for, for there to be a solution? Is the only viable option to rip it up and start again. But again, that's going to bring issues of its own in. I find it very difficult to understand how it's going to work because it's it's one of those things that they've let it go too much. It's too far gone. There's too many people with a vested interest in, and there's too many coaches in the industry who are uh, not necessarily unqualified, but who shouldn't really be delivering services. But we also have a culture where nobody's get, really getting done for malpractice. And, and, you know, I remember we, we talked about 20 years, people were like, oh, you can't do this because you get sued. I've been in the industry a long time. I've never heard of anybody getting sued. You know, America, yeah, nobody over here. You know, yeah. I've heard a couple of coaches who've had a couple of little legal run-ins with people when they've, you know, they've they've damaged them or, you know, somebody's broken an ankle or something like that. But but again, I, I don't think I've ever seen it go to fruit, full fruition where somebody's been sued to the point that they, they get kicked out of the industry or whatever it might be. And maybe we need that. Maybe we need malpractice to be you know, to be, you know, highlighted. And maybe we do need to be a little bit nervous about the delivery of service, which is what what, what it creates. But does that create another barrier and another challenge? It's tricky. My view looking into other industries is that if there is uh, an individual or, or an organisation that continually over-promises and under-delivers or isn't qualified to conduct the activities in, in which its, it, its business operates, it doesn't last long. You know, it gets, it's separated. The weed separates from the chaff and, and you don't survive. It might be my my personal bias of being in, in the fitness industry, but it seems to me, and as you alluded to earlier, there's a number of individuals who rebrand their business or even rename themselves and go again and offer a service and take the money and then cut and run. So I, I don't know your thoughts on it. Do you feel that the fitness industry perhaps maybe does attract some types of people that are... Oh, 100%. 100%. The fitness industry is full of, full of narcissistic idiots. It, it, it just is. Because because the nature of what we do, we're dealing with physical appearance here. You know, people get into this industry because they're insecure. I got into this industry because I was insecure. I, got, I, by default, ended up becoming a fitness instructor and a personal trainer because I was stuck for things to do and I looked at the things I was good at. And at the time, I'd gone from being an overweight kid to not being quite as overweight. And the difference it made to me was phenomenal. I was like, wow. But at the same time, I had all these massive insecurities that were brought about by all these things in life that had occurred to me. And the problem is we've got egos, we've got narcissism, we've got all this stuff. And and within that, there is this, you know, 
like I said before, where, where you've got these people rebranding and re-delivering and blah, blah, blah. But we've also got this industry that kind of turns a blind eye and it sucks. You know, there was there's two two people that I know of in the last few years have been done for ridiculous. Not And I say been done. They've not been sued or anything, but they've been outed for behavior that you just could not condone on any level, any level. And the fitness industry were like, We've forgotten about it now. You're fine. Carry on. You know, there was one guy got done for, you know, molesting a bunch of people. And and it was, and all of a sudden, you know, and I went up against it and I'm getting hammered by everybody going, oh, you know, he's a good guy. He's this, that, the other. He did my qualification. I'm like, hold on. Why are we turning a blind eye to this? He should never work in this industry ever again. And I'm all for giving people a second chance, but, but nothing's occurred. You know, there's no one gone into an, any kind of rehab program or a, whatever it might be, you know, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, didn't mean to. And then they carry on. And and that sickens me a little bit, you know, is that we're, we're almost hugely forgiven, you know, uh, for these things that have been done and, 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 and I think the industry just permits it. Do you think that is because a lot of people are drawn into the fitness industry as consumers because they're unhappy with their body, they, they don't feel great about themselves? And they maybe latch on to an influencer or an individual who might make them feel a little bit better, give them a little bit of advice. And then you almost, you have that loyalty because it almost doesn't matter what you do now. You maybe feel that little bit better. You were my, uh, you know, gateway person into slightly healthier living. And there seems to be a ton more forgiveness there than perhaps you would get in another industry with another individual. Yeah, because people think they know somebody. Right. You know, they think they, think they know them. You know, like they say, you know, never meet your heroes. You know, but but it's they think they know these people, and they're like, look, blah 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 blah. But you, ultimately, they've been caught out because of a behaviour or something they've done, which is completely it, it's malpractice. It, 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 you know, it's it's almost the point that they're going to get arrested for this. You know, there's got to be cases. There's got to be all sorts of stuff, and 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 the industry just forgives and forgets and just moves on. And unfortunately, we're, we're part of this. People don't want to be involved in other people's business, which is bizarre because of the way that social media works, but people don't. People don't want drama. Coaches certainly don't want drama because they're too busy trying to make ends meet. Mm. And it's just this whole plethora of, 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 of challenges and problems that, that just exacerbate all of these things in the industry. And and I think there's – and I don't want to – I don't want to rant about it and I don't want to – it is what it is. And I think this is this is where a lot of people of my sort of era and who've been involved with education, been involved with, you know, trying to step the markers up in the industry. And I think hopefully have done a, a pretty good job in many respects. But there's certain things that are just, in my view, too far gone. Maybe that's defeatist, but I'm being realistic here. Is that I think to govern the industry is going to be one hell of a challenge. And I don't don't think anybody's got the capabilities doing it. Also, nobody's got the revenue to do it. Because it's going to take a lot of money to do this. Because you've got to have infrastructure, you've got to have, you know, you've got to have people, which you've got to pay for, and and all of these things. And it, it's like a lot of industries. If there's no money in it, there's no point in governing it. You know, industries like accountancy, they govern very well because there's money in it. Mm. Unfortunately, like I said, the the fees and what people earn from PT hasn't changed much in the last ten or fifteen years. Had it moved down that route, somebody might have stepped in and gone, "Hold on, what?" We've got coaches earning six figures, consistent, and a lot of them. So therefore, if we were to govern this industry and we were to charge each one of them a thousand pound a year, for example, hypothetically, 
to be part of this group that is governed and we can guarantee that they're going to be put out there as these certified blah 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 trainers all of a sudden there's there's something worth doing for somebody and, and people don't do stuff for free and they don't do stuff for you know just because they think they're helping out it seems, you know, somebody, yeah it seems it seems kind of crazy when you look at the the, the, the obesity statistics both in the uk and in the western world as well uh, and how education, in my view, could play such an important part in, in trying to address that, especially childhood obesity. But as you say, with the powers that be, there's no incentive for them to, to be on the front foot in terms of regulation, where, as you and I both know, and, and anyone watching this will know that physical activity intervention is one of the first things that people should consider when, when looking to address their their weight or their health or their, their happiness, right? And it's all interlinked. And it's, you know, and the thing is, is that, that on those different levels, you've got, a GP isn't going to work with a coach unless they respect that coach and that coach is of a certain degree of education or knowledge or whatever it might be. They're not going to. And this has been throughout my entire career I've witnessed this. You know, I found GPs that were typically clients of mine who I would then work with because it was easy because then they understood me. They got what I was about. They got the my knowledge base. They understood that I could get these people to a certain level. I could and then relay stuff. And the same with physios. Physios are like, yeah, but I, I could hand this person to a, a coach and say, don't do this plane of movement, don't do this, 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 this. The coach has no idea. So I ended up working with one of the best physios in the country and used to get referrals. And we used to refer back and forward all the time. And it was, and we had that mutual respect. So therefore, those networks don't exist. And, and when we talk about the NHS and we talk about the, you know, taking that burden and stepping that burden away from them, it needs the government and these larger you know, entities to go, hold on, there's actually value to behind coaches. There's a huge value here that long-term is going to make a massive difference to the health of the nation and, and stuff needs to be subsidized. And I know one of the governing bodies in, in this industry is actually is actually pivoting into that space quite heavily. Uh, they're doing a lot. I don't know how much of it is public, but I, I know from the conversations I've had, they're actually looking at government-funded stuff and, and uh, you know, almost these projects that are looking at, uh, you know, diabetes population, the beast populations, all these uh, different populations and looking at how do we cater for them from a nutritional and coaching standpoint. So maybe there is something there. Maybe there is a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel and and maybe there is an opportunity there, but it needs everybody to kind of step it up a little because we've got to have a respect. Whereas that level three coach that you mentioned before that did his weekend course, blah, 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 he's, you know, he's, he's 21, he still wears a snapback backwards when he's in the gym training people, drinks coffee all day, you know, pepped up on pre-workouts and and nobody's really going to take them terribly seriously. It's challenging times in terms of, you know, inflation, cost of living crisis, the competitiveness of the industry, how to stand out from the crowd. And also you've got, at the moment, huge convergence between fitness, health, tech. You know, every big player globally is looking to get into the health space. Um and technology does obviously present opportunities, but I'd be interested to get your view on how can those great coaches that you deal with, how can they future-proof themselves against what Apple or Amazon or you know what the big guys are going to do in this space? Does it all come back to what you said before about that that level of service, that going above and beyond? Is is that kind of central to any successful coach moving forward? Yeah, you've got to embrace it. You know, I I, I used to hear the, the old old school bodybuilders who were like. Like, oh, I don't like this new kind of kind of industry and 
you know, uh, I like writing stuff down, giving people diets and blah, blah, blah. Because they didn't evolve, they're, they've fallen by the wayside. Whereas, you know, what we've got here is we've got, you know, uh, we're doing quite a lot of work with uh, Whoop, with High Price, with a lot of these tech companies. We're, doing, we're, we're bringing that into the fray for us uh, uh, at the academy because there's certain populations that we just don't care for. And there's also other challenges that these businesses have. So again, if I have a conversation with Whoop, uh, Apple, we've had a conversation with Apple about the Apple Watch. And one of the challenges they have, they've got this wonderful tech, but nobody knows how to use it. And nobody knows what the data means. So Whoop's are great. I had someone message me actually just this morning about the Whoop because how do you find the Whoop shop? I said, great. I says, oh, I don't really know what to do with it. All I do is it tells me to sleep more. I said, well, it does a lot more than that. And the challenge that they have as a, as a business is that Joe Public is embracing these things. They have no idea what the data means. So as a coach, my job is to, if I've got somebody who's wearing a Whoop or wearing a Rua Ring or an Apple Watch, I'm saying, hey, let's use the data from that. And let's embrace that data and let's find out what we can do to improve it. Because I've got there, I've got a tool that will tell me metrics. And if I'm doing my job well, those metrics will move. Which all that does, it just reiterates to the client how amazing I am. And and what we're doing is working. Which which we didn't have 10 years ago. All we had were people stepped on scales. Oh, I've lost any weight or whatever it might be. Or measuring the biceps or whatever it might be, the, the, the metrics. We've got these incredible metrics now, but people don't embrace them. You've got all this tech that you can use. Software, you know, I remember, again, probably 15, 20 years ago, I remember we got all these these pads in the gym. Sorry, but it's a light meter. It's an SAD light, but it's probably the newest example. So they gave us these pads that were like the original iPads. They weren't iPads. They were some kind of device, and it used to link with the, the computer at the front desk. And it was like, oh, this is the new tech. It's this idea. It meant we could write programs on them. But nobody used them because everybody was like, I don't like that because I like to do it the way I used to do it, which is writing it down in a notepad or whatever it might be. So if you don't embrace these things, and you were, you were of that era where, you know, I used to use BlackBerry. And I just, I was like, I'm not using an Apple phone. I'm not. And I used to know it for years and years. But prior to that, I used to have a file of facts that I used to put all my client bookings in. So I am not using a BlackBerry. <laughs> and it, and it, you go through this. And I think what coaches have got to do, they've got to embrace all this stuff because there's so much opportunity now. And the conversation I had with a chap the other day was all about this, this ability to be able to diversify in this industry now compared to what you could before and to have all these tools. He was going through, they, they have a lot of coaches who work for them. It was actually, we were at the Gymshark HQ and there's a bunch of coaches who work from the Gymshark HQ. And we were chatting to them about their services. And he said, I've got such and such coaches in this, 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 this. And, and breath work was one of the things. I said, Back in our day, you were trying to differentiate by just do, doing something a bit novel and a bit crazy and a bit different. Whereas what's happened with weight training, weight training's always gone back to the fundamentals and the fundamentals work, we know, but it's how do you get someone to execute them? But now what you've got is you've got all these other things that actually change health markers that we're aware of that people aren't doing. That we've got all this, we've got this technology, we've got all this uh, evolution of certain things. We've got this research that didn't exist 10 years ago. On stuff like you know cold water exposure, we've got metrics that we didn't have HRV. Nobody talked about HRV ten years ago. We know about heart rate variability. We know that we can measure sleep patterns. We can know we can measure slow wave sleep. You know, non REM uh, REM sleep. We can measure all this. We can measure that quality. We can measure heart rate a lot more consistently than we used to. You know, it wasn't a matter of when we used to do where you used to have to put this strap on and blah blah blah. We can do all this. And if you're a coach and you embrace all that and utilize it all, you've got. You've got opportunities for additional service, but you've also got opportunities for additional revenue as well. 
Because if you partner and collaborate with these people, so we're doing some stuff with high price again, and I'm sure there'll be five that openly talk about it, but we're going to run their certification programs through our academy. So if people get certified, they're allowed to become a reseller of high price. So if your client wants a percussion massager, not only are you going to be able to show them how to use it, because remember, percussion massages have become the new exercise bike. People buy them and they just sit there. People aren't entirely sure how to wear them, but they feel they should have one because everybody else does. You know, exercise bikes. People use them as clothes horses. Mm-hmm. They put the exercise bike in, and it's like loads of exercise equipment. People buy it, just sit there, gather dust until eventually they get rid of it. But percussion massages are great. You know, there's good science behind them, good data behind them. People don't have a clue how to use them. So if we can teach people how to use them, all of a sudden you can teach your clients, you've got another service delivery, you've got another session you could potentially do with them. Look, we're going to do a session. Just I'm going to do a one-hour session with you, how to use your percussion massage to show you how to do it. You want to pay for that session, and then I'll get you a percussion massage, and this is what it's going to cost you. And I'll make my 20%. means I've got a secondary revenue stream. Client's got something that's going to go away and do a job that before they had to go take time out of the day to go and see a massage therapist for. And, and we're not we're not taking away from the massage therapist, but going look, this complements everything, because realistically, most people what they have one massage a month, you know, one physical one. Continue to do that because it's great because that means somebody can manually get into the areas that you probably wouldn't, and and this will complement it and this will enhance your recovery. So I think if you embrace all that tech and embrace all the stuff that's available, I think you've got the ability to deliver the most phenomenal service. I mean, I talked before about the food companies. I can get I can get food to my door. We we have, I don't know where they have it around you. Get here. Mm. I can have food to my door in less than ten minutes. And so all I've got to do is understand what did they deliver and how can I combine those things to make a meal. You know. So so these are services where you know we look at clients. If I have somebody who eats out prep, I can give them a, an entire prep menu and tell them what what will fit their macros. I wanted to finish our chat, Bill, just talking about you and optimization because obviously you're running multiple businesses, you've got a family, it's a it's a full-time, full-time commitment in many different spheres. What do you do? What are your non-negotiables each day? What do you have to make sure you do each day so you can perform at the level that you consistently want to? Okay. Uh right. Uh, I get up consistently at the same time throughout the course of the year. And the way that I manage that is, uh, again, without getting into a lot of the science and stuff behind it, but the the other business opera, we we built the business around circadian rhythm and supporting circadian biology because what I found towards the latter end of my career dealing with CEOs, business, corporates, people who are demanding a lot of cognitive and physical aspects of their life. You know, most people who demand cognitively also demand physically. And what happens there is we, we have challenges in sleep. We have challenges with uh, wakefulness. We have challenges with people overstimulating. We have challenges with people using alcohol to help send them to sleep. We've got all those challenges. So, so the brand that we we developed was built around circadian biology for that reason. And within those non-negotiables are the things that I've always done that I used to get my clients to do. The 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 things that just help me manage my day. So, if I'm going to get up at the same time every day, I've got to expose my optic nerve to light. So, one of the basically, I, I mean, I just showed you exactly what I inadvertently, but I have light exposure in the morning. As soon as I wake up, you know, I actually, the first thing I do, I actually jump in an ice bath. Uh, I have an ice bath at the side. It was 2.4 degrees this morning. It was a bit chilly. So I do an ice bath because the evidence and the data on cold water exposure is, is interesting. It uh, needs more of it. 
Uh, but it's something I've done for the last 15 years. I've always used cold showers. I've always used ice baths for sports recovery and various other bits and pieces. But one of those things, and I, I did a video on this, where there's certain things that people consistently do that are uncomfortable. There isn't going to be millions and millions of people around the planet doing this thing, which absolutely sucks. It's painful. It's horrible. Something that's mildly addictive, mind, but it's something that is... Uh, people aren't going to do it. And if they do, they'll do it a couple of times and never do it again. But there's millions of people doing something. There are benefits to it. And the data's good. It's not where it should be, which is always going to be the argument. But we're not going to know for 10 years. But the data is following a trajectory where we're going to get some great data around cold water exposure. You feel like the benefits mainly at the moment that, that, that are provable or at least actionable is the psychological effect. It's the resilience and the fact that you know that if you do a two and a half degree ice bath first in the morning, nothing in your day is going to be as, as bad as that, right? That's that's the hardest part of my day. It is genuinely the hardest part of my day. And and to wake up and go, and to get out of a nice, cosy, warm bed, and know that you've got to walk downstairs, walk outside, get into something that's freezing cold. And the first thing I do is, is I'm going to regulate my breathing and my heart rate. First thing I'm going to do. And that's the start of my day. And, and whether that dopamine hit occurs data tells us it does i don't know but i feel damn good so so i'm going to continue to do it so i do that i then come into my office to turn my light on it's my optic nerve biologically now i'm awake i'm awake we have 18 hours of wakefulness throughout the course of a day yeah and then we've got another eight hours we sleep we probably need around about 12 hours of light exposure so i have first 12 hours of my day i'm looking at light positive amounts of light coming in whatever that might be, blinds, uh, open, walking outside, uh, SAD light if I need it, to make sure I get adequate light exposure throughout the course of the day. After 12 hours of my day working biologically, after 12 hours of biological working, I'm going to start to think about my management of light going the other way. I'm going to start to decrease it. So at that point, if I'm still stuck in front of my laptop, I'm either going to put these ones on or I'm going to put these ones on, depending on what time of day it is. Right? So I'm going to manage my light exposure because... My body biologically at that point wants to be preparing itself for bed. So my serotonin needs to start coming down and my melatonin needs to start coming up. If I haven't had enough daylight, I'm not getting enough serotonin, therefore I'm not going to fall asleep properly. I keep to that pattern of sleeping. Throughout that, obviously, I'm supplementing with, again, all the, 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 the things we've designed. So we're utilizing caffeine, first thing. Not immediately, because for it, taking caffeine immediately upon waking means that your sleep's been poor. Because caffeine works as an adenosine receptor antagonist. The adenosine drives sleep pressure. When we sleep and we have good sleep, all of our adenosine gets cleared. So therefore, if I take caffeine in the morning, it should have very little impact. So if you want to eat people who wakes up and have to have coffee to wait at the start of my day, you've got a sleep problem. And you need to address that. So I'll take my caffeine, which is a phenomenal ergogenic aid, misused and, and abused. But I will take my first hit of caffeine in, in what we call RISE and a bunch of nootropics and some electrolytes and various other bits and pieces about 30 to 60 minutes after I've woken up. Prior to that, I'm taking electrolytes, the fluid electrolytes, because I hydrate first. Hydrate, light exposure, take my caffeine. That's the first portion of my day. Eight hours into my day is when I take my next supplemental hit, which is caffeine-free, but I'm looking at nootropics. Because there's going to be a spike in sleep purge. It's a normal biological spike. People get sleep purge. And at that point, I also want to embrace movement. And I also want to get some more light if I can. 
So I might go outside and have a little walk for half an hour, or I'll certainly go and expose my eyes to some more light at that stage. Because there's a tendency to be in an office environment, or like like now, I'm actually going. I'm, I've got a meeting in London actually at one o'clock. So I'm actually going to leave what is right now a badly lit office. I haven't got my phone, but uh, I could measure the looks right now in this office, and it's not enough. There's not enough light in here. So I'm actually in a melatonin-induced environment right now because it's not light enough in here. I've got my blinds down because it allows me to regulate the light better for the, the call. So I'm going to go out and get some daylight now because I need a hit of it because otherwise I'm going to start to feel a bit fatigued. If I stay here now for the rest of the day, I'm, my, my productivity is going to go down, and I know that. So hydration, light exposure, caffeine management, uh, not a daily thing, but alcohol is always going to be something that you know people need to consider. Uh, two units of alcohol affect your sleep quality by about 9%. Four units will affect your sleep quality by about 40%. So if you're going to have a couple of drinks before you go to bed, even though it's a sedative, your sleep quality is going to suffer. So you wake up the next morning, you need to over caffeinate. If you over caffeinate and drink caffeine too late in the day, which likely you're going to do, you then affect your sleep. So non-negotiables, caffeine only exists in the first eight hours of the day. I don't take caffeine after that point because I need to metabolize it before I go to bed. Light exposure, an adequate light exposure throughout the course of the day. 10,000 looks for at least 30 minutes a day. My working environment, I'm trying to keep over 1,000 looks of light throughout the course of the day. Hydrate, first thing. Light exposure, caffeinate. Manage that within those eight hours. And then throughout the course of the day, movement's got to play a role. So exercise of some description, whether that's going for a walk or whether it's, you know, I'm actually, I'm limited as to what I can do right now. We talked about it just before, but I'll walk. Uh, at least throughout the course of the day and get some kind of activity in. Because again, movement is what classes as a dike, but it's a thing which will help you regulate your biological rhythm. And and yeah, I think those are pretty much, and my, my kind of bedtime routine, but bedtime routines tend to vary between people because it's just a sequence of events that you need to do that prepares your brain for bed. Uh, also, if there's, if there's pending topics or pending, what I don't want to do is get into bed with a brain full of emails, if that makes sense. So the first thing I want to do is empty, empty my inbox. So the easiest way for me to empty my inbox is to write it all down on paper. So if I've got a bunch of emails in my head, I want to put them on paper before I get into bed because then I can clear my mind and fall asleep. So I think I've kind of pinpointed a few of that. It's, what's fascinating as well, I think, especially, you know, certain times of, of the year, you know, January, New Year, people are thinking about how to improve their health and they're not necessarily looking for, I guess some people are looking for complete change in lifestyle, but they're just looking for simple improvements. Everything you've outlined there is very, very low effort, really, but big impact. I mean, hydrating before you have caffeine. I'm not saying everyone needs to have a, a nice bath, but maybe just a bit of a cold shower regulating the caffeine intake throughout the day moving getting daylight which can be challenging depending on where you're living but it's still doable none of these are big effort impacts are they low cost every single one of them is pretty much free <laughs> you know with the exception of the the, the supplements that we do uh, everything else is pretty much free you know we we enhance it because we look at our audience is high performers is people who ask for a super physiological output so if you if you just want to have you know a good diet and good nutrition and you just want your output cognitively and physically just to be where it should be, which a lot of people struggle to even get it to where it should be, you want to feel good, blah blah blah. That's fine, that's cool. But our audience is people who ask for that super physiological level. We do a lot of corporate stuff. Uh, we deal with a lot of people in very high end corporate stuff. Uh, we deal with you know entrepreneurs, people who are 
who want to wake up and function fully, irrespective of whether that's three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock, six o'clock, whatever. Doesn't matter when you get up, we've got to still follow the same biological sequence. And we know through circadian biology, there's certain things that happen at certain times of day, but it's all based off light exposure, triggering that and starting it. People always talk about circadian diagrams, and when you see them, it makes these broad assumptions that you get up at six and the sun comes up at six, and then the sun goes down at six, and you start to go to bed at six. And that isn't realistically what happens. And it goes back to kind of what I was saying before. It's the application of what's realistic here. And like you said about the ice bath, the ice bath's akin to kind of the military making their beds. Do something first thing in the morning that's challenging. You know, opening your phone and scrolling through social media isn't challenging. And there's actually data now that shows that it actually takes dopamine levels down. So there's a bunch of stuff where you start your day positively with a dopamine hit of some description, you know, and there's multiple ways of being enhancing dopamine. And, and you know, you should be looking at probably hitting one of those first thing in the day. You know, a sense of accomplishment, making your bed. Dopamine. I've just accomplished something, done something magnificent, something that's going to make a difference in my day. And that's why the military always did it. You know, it's routine. It's you start your day on a win. And whatever that win is, make sure there is something there that's a win every morning. You know, and a win isn't crawling out of bed with bleary eyes and drinking a full cup of coffee. Oh, I'm winning in the morning. You're not, really. You're, you're patching up poor sleep. You know, so we look at all these things. These are all the things that I looked at with my clients. Every single one of my clients had all of the classical symptoms of coronary disruption. You know, difficulty maintaining sleep, uh, nighttime sleep, uh, poor sleep latency, so they lie in bed staring at the ceiling for hours. You know, all of these things, which are things that we we consciously look at. What my other business is about, Human24 is all about security biology, education around that. How do we bring it all together? And how do we also supplement that for the people that ask for that super physiological output rather than, you know, pre and post workout? Sports nutrition is about what do you do before, during, and after you work out. Workout compromises, it's less than 6% of people's lifetime is spent working out in that kind of level or doing some kind of exercise or physio. 6%. We're looking at the other 94 and going, look, we should be looking at the rest of our day and trying to perform the rest of the day as well. And performance is everything down to sleep. You know, when you're sleeping, you're performing. You're either doing it badly or you're doing it well. We want people to do it better. So that needs a bunch of stuff, precursors that happen before. And we also need to ensure there's a bunch of stuff happening when we sleep. So, you know, all the ingredients that we put in our pre-sleep is all about, it's not going to knock you out, but it's going to improve your level of sleep. And the cool thing is we've got things like whoops and overs that move the metrics. So, so again, we're like, look, if you've got a whoop, tell us what the data says. Take our supplement, read the data. Don't do anything else. Just take someone, read the data. And for us, that's that's great for us. And then that's not like what I was saying, embrace it. It's there, it's data. And at the end of the day, if we're not moving the metrics on these, on these data points, we're not doing something right, you know, and and we should be able to move these things. And and that's the great thing about stuff like that, where before people were just looking to feel, mm-hmm. you know, you, you'll know this, but, you know, supplements, if they put something into a supplement, they used to put niacin, you, you've had niacin before, yeah? So they used to put niacin in loads of supplements because it gives you this tingle and the, this red sensation because people like to feel something. It doesn't really do a lot. You know, there's some great health benefits to, you know, the, the, the B vitamin and niacin comes from, but it's, they used to put it in supplements because it made people tingle, you know, because people like to feel something, but we want to measure and, and see data points move. You know, it's a bit like, you know, marathon runners, you don't really feel carbohydrates until you reach that, you know, 90 minutes into a race when you start to run out of glycogen, 
that's when you feel the carbohydrates. And that's supplemental carbohydrates. And I always, you know, it's always a nice comparison. You know, you'd never run a marathon without supplementing carbohydrates. You know, it's crazy. So, so why would you ask more cognitively of your body and physically of your body every single day, but not have the resources coming into it that are going to support that? Thank you for listening to the Unfiltered Podcast. If you've got this far, I hope you won't mind if I ask you to leave a five-star review when you get the chance. We'd really appreciate it. And don't forget you can access all of our exclusive unfiltered video interviews and features at unfilteredonline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. See you next time.